Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. So what's interesting is 1 Samuel, the sixth chapter, tells the story when the Philistines took the ark away from Israel. Now we're in 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter, also the sixth chapter, starting with verse 1. I'm going to read all 23 verses. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. You understand what he's saying? The God is in the God, the Lord Almighty. His name is the Lord Almighty, and he is enthroned between the cherubim on top of the ark. That's what he's saying here. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. That's your clue. It's on a hill, so it's picking up speed on the way down. Uzzah and Ahio sons of Abinadab were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio, Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with cassinets, harps, lyres, L-Y-R-E-S, not L-I-A-R-E-S, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Remember a couple weeks ago when I was, I was, God struck Uzzah here. I'm about to read it. God struck Uzzah because he was trying to settle what God was shaking. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. Uzzah is where we get the term Uzzah-friendly churches. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. Be careful, David. And to this day, that place is called Perez. Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Do you ever feel like that? You press and you pray and you press and you pray and you wonder how can the ark? I hear the stories. I hear what you say. I hear the the things that you've experienced, but how can the ark ever come to me. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed 
the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. You got to know that the perimeter of Obed-Edom's house, the grass was greener, the crops were stronger, the sky was bluer. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, you understand they are now carrying the ark, not put it on a new cart. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. That little phrase right there lets me Read this with a little attitude when I get to what she had to say. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. A lot of bread, a lot of raisins. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar, vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. When David made this second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem... He carefully followed God's instructions. God didn't want a cart of wood or an ox carrying his presence. He wanted real men. In fact, we just read it. Every six steps, they would sacrifice an ox as if to say, no more oxen. The ox is a symbol of strength and wealth. God will not be manipulated by our wealth. 
are our physical strength. The weakness of man is what will carry the ark of God's presence. The Levites had to carry the heavy ark on their shoulder for a journey of approximately 10 miles. They must have sweated out. This was a heavy piece of furniture, which is why they chose the oxen and the cart to start with. The process of bringing God's glory to Jerusalem is a prophetic symbol. It's a picture of how we're trying to bring the presence of God back to the church, the glory of God back to the church. And it's critical for us to understand the difference between the anointing and the Shekinah glory. The omnipresence. His omnipresence is always with us, but we're going to understand, we're going to try to understand the kabod, the weight, the glory of God when the glory comes. Obed-Edom's house was somewhere between 7 to 14 miles from most theologians. That's what they tell us. So if we, we're going to try to balance it out and just kind of select 10 miles. If it was 10 miles, we can form a picture of what this journey looked like. The process of sacrifice on the way to Jerusalem. The Levites would kill an ox and a fattened calf, take six steps, and do the process again. I mean, just imagine from here to 75. One, two, three, four, five, six. Consider Bible scholars are divided on this whole issue, but if David and his procession did stop every six steps, every six paces to make sacrifice, then they put in some heavy labor to make the journey. uh, They put in some heavy labor on the road to revival. They didn't put that heavy box on their shoulders and casually walk along for 10 miles like they were taking a Sunday stroll in the park. They didn't walk through the gates of Jerusalem looking all fresh and crisp in their Sunday clothes. They weren't saying, hey, look at us. We're having revival. They were dancing. They were exhibiting zeal and passion but they were a bloody mess David and the Levites the priests, the worshipers paid a price to usher God's presence into the city that day it's no wonder when the crew finally arrived that David turned into a dancing spinning fool why? they were thankful that they made the trip I think everyone in the group said, we made it. Any way you look at it, it was a bloody, smoky process. 
And I believe it'll be the same for us. When you move from a level of anointing to calling for the glory of God to come, things don't get easier. They get heavier. They don't get easier. They get heavier. I've said before, anointing, when you are anointed, when you're gifted and you have an anointing, the anointing enables you to do what you do better. But when the glory of God comes, it disables you, takes you to your face, not just your knees, but it takes you to your face. If you've ever encountered the weight of God's glory, you know what I'm talking about. I want you to know that's what I'm after. I will not settle for less than what I know is available. It may take us a while to get there. It may take a lot of sweat. It's okay, David's going to grab that, but I just pitched it in the floor. Most people go for the new cart method. It represents a no-sweat method of worship. God warned Adam and Eve at the beginning of their life outside the garden. He said, you are going to live by the sweat of your brow. Sweat has particular significance to God. It is the means by which value is transferred in the earth. In modern times, if you want to transfer money from your boss's account to your back pocket, you'll have to sweat or labor in some way. If the farmer, the farmer's going to have to sweat to transfer value from the soil to his bank account to where he can feed his family. It could be you work in an air-conditioned office, but you're going to have to sweat out writing that report. Or you might get drenched in sweat as you drive nails at a construction site, especially in Texas in the summer. David understood this and refused to offer to God anything that cost him nothing. He would spend money he earned by sweating out the problems of the kingdom to purchase the ground and the animals. He would also offer up sweaty worship in the dance. I mean, I would try to demonstrate what I, what I think it looked like. Anybody, what was the movie King David, right? Richard Gere played King David, and he was just a, he looked like a Pentecostal. I don't know. I never saw. He looked more like a Reading revivalist than a, than a, than a Pentecostal. He looked more like a Stephanie Gretzinger. Uh, Richard Gere, he didn't know. Um, sweat transfers value. It requires sweat to worship. I'll explain it. Worship is actually, comes from these two words, worth 
ship. The transferring of value from us to God. That is why, and this is why I'm waiting till the end to receive, because I want to give you a little definition of what tithing and offering means, why we call it a part of worship. This is why the giving of tithes and offerings are a part of worship. We, twa- we transfer, <laughs> transfer, I know if I don't just acknowledge that I just did that, Grace is going to make fun of me later anyway. We transfer sweaty hours into dollars and then give sweaty money to God in an act of worship. It's called worship. It's another way of transferring our time to him. Whether you sweat figuratively or literally, you will sweat if you want to make a living. And you will sweat if you really want to worship. See, we think worship is just the list of songs we do on Sunday. But worship without the sacrifice that we sweat our way through, if that is not attached to our worship, then we're just making noise. There must be... something attached to the energy that we give. We can't just dance and not pay a price. When the flesh of our humanity gets lazy, we try to carry the things of God using no sweat methods so that we can walk alongside them and be all excited about transporting the glory. The truth is, We really don't want to sweat it out ourselves. Are you willing to pay the price for God's presence? I want you to consider that. I want you to just contemplate that question. Let it settle in your heart. Are you, you may not even know how to answer this. Or you may not even understand what the question, where the question would lead you. Are you willing to pay the price for God's presence? Jesus himself taught us. He came to earth as a servant who made himself of no reputation. If you don't believe sweat has value, picture Jesus sweating it out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus moved his flesh into the ultimate position of sacrificial obedience to his Father's will when he had to sweat it out in prayer. Things happen when you sweat. Eternal Value is moved from here to there when you sweat. I'm concerned that most Christians aren't interested in paying any price for God's presence. We expect it to be brought to us on a silver platter. We gather, and if you don't like what they're doing on stage, we pick somewhere else to go because we think it's about what they bring, and we just have to sit and like it. And if we like it, we'll participate. If you don't like it, we're going to find another church. And then if you're, if you're that kind of person, you're not going to be happy anywhere you go. 
We're like spectators watching paid performers or oxen. You ain't nothing but an ox. (laughs) Trying to drag God's presence into the church. It's time to abandon spectator worship. Abandon spectator services and learn how to become a participator that you just decide this is this is my lifestyle this is who I am this is what God has created me to be worship is not what we sing on Sunday worship is our lifestyle sometimes we do even worse we play the role of Michael Saul's daughter We stare out the windows of our religious palaces as spectators making fun of those who get muddy and sweaty and bloody. Barrenness will always be the result of a lack of intimacy. Am I talking about salvation by works? Absolutely not. I'm talking about a passionate pursuit of God. The central theme that dominates the Bible narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I'm talking about returning to our first love, our first passion. In some of our churches, passion has become a dirty word. David said, my soul follows hard after you. Once we're saved and become his people by grace, we are to seek him first. We are to seek him passionately. Follow his commands passionately. Live our lives for him passionately. The triumphant worshipers who entered the gates of Jerusalem carrying the ark of God's glory bore the marks of the struggle of the journey. Their struggle to bring the blue flame of his presence. The ones who labor to restore God's presence and favor are easily distinguished from the barren worshipers who stay in the comfort of their chair just watching. The robes of the passionate are stained with the marks of bloody sacrifice. You may not see the blood and the the guts at this, at, at this stage of our life, uh, the blood is there. It's forever, it's forever marking us. It's the blood of Jesus. The mud and the sweat on the priestly robes are visible reminders of the costly journey to get God's presence into the city. 
Does that mean under the new covenant that uh, we have to jump, hop, and skip to get God's presence to come? No, but you have to be willing to. God, who is spirit, must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross did away with the sacrifice of animals forever. But God never did away with this concept of sacrifice in worship. He said that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. I said a couple weeks ago, brokenness in the earth creates openness in the heavens. You make sacrifices to him every time you sing a hymn and put your virtue into the lyric. Sometimes we just sing it with our memory. We sing from memory. We look at the words. We don't even memorize it. We just sing the words. And, but when you put yourself into the lyric, you make sacrifice. You put sweat into it. Another way you can transfer sweat into the kingdom is through your giving. When you sweat or labor to earn money in the natural realm, You transfer part of yourself to God when you put that free will offering into the kingdom. You're transferring value. Don't offer to God anything that costs you nothing. I believe we need to learn what David discovered about this concept. He said it. David was the one that said it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He knew that the only way to restore God's presence and favor to his people was to sweat the thing out in sacrificial, obedient, repentant worship. If the glory of God is going to come to our city, somebody has to carry it. Somebody has to carry it. Everyone who's pursuing revival today will tell you revival stuff is hard work. Ask the ushers. Ask the prayer team members. Ask the intercessors who, 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 the intercessors who have to pray and pry at the brass heavens. One man cannot carry the ark alone. Others have to put their shoulders under the weight, under the load of the journey and say, here, let me help. That's what Monday morning prayer is about. People have to come and put their shoulders under the weight of the vision of God's glory. We don't just come and waste time or take up an hour. Jesus told his disciples, can you tarry with me for an hour? We're not just trying to take up your time. We are looking for people who will pray and pay the price and put their shoulder under the weight of the vision for the glory of God to come to the house. We have to carry it, not touch it. Never touch it. We're invited to carry it, but not touch it. I was having a conversation with someone recently about some 
particular worshipers getting a lot of limelight and uh, getting like sucked into the favor, getting pulled into the stage and the spotlight and the clothes and the and the image and 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 it was like I it's like I saw the ark and it had smudgy fingerprints all over it and again I heard the Lord say I want you to carry it but don't touch it don't become so familiar with what you think you know that you touch the glory of God and lose everything okay the way to open heaven above you is for you to pursue a fresh revelation of where God is. We live with less than God's best most of the time because we tend to major on the truth of where God has been. I'm sitting here telling you about some of my experiences, my encounters with the glory of God, but I'm not, uh, I'm not camping out on that experience. And, and, but it's, 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 it's an experience that that has wrecked me and ruined me and put a desire for more and for me to be able to take everybody I can to the more place. The revelation of where God is must be pursued because God doesn't feed casual nibblers. He feeds the hungry. They that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not the casual, I'm happy, everything's great, look at me. The difference between, I want to illustrate the difference between concentrating on past truths and seeking fresh revelation. Um, I heard Tommy Taney tell this story. If you were uh, a skilled tiger hunter in India, you could tell me a great deal about your prey just by examining its tracks. You could tell me the tiger's size, the sex, the, the approximate age, and how long it had been since he made the track. In fact, you probably get real excited about those tracks because they mean they hold something special to you. However, there is a vast difference between studying the tracks of a tiger and looking the tiger in the eyes. That's what I'm talking about. Too much of the time, Christians become so enamored with the truths of where God has been that they fail to notice he's visiting us right now. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were inside the temple praying for the Messiah to come, completely oblivious to the fact that he was outside passing the temple with a triumphal entry as he entered the city of Jerusalem. They missed their visitation because they were so locked into the prophetic paw prints 
of the past, that they refused to recognize the moment of the Messiah right in front of their face. I mean, you got, do you, do you, are you with me? Do I need to repeat that? They're in the temple. The Pharisees of that day are in the temple of God in Jerusalem as Jesus is coming in that Palm Sunday. They're inside the temple praying for the Messiah to come, oblivious that he's outside. God help us to never get to the place in our worship as we sit, sit, we come in here and we pray for the glory of God to come and we, we cry for, for the presence of God to come, oblivious that he's right within our reach, right within our grasp. We gotta read and study God's word, but we don't need to worship past revelation to the exclusion of new revelation. Like uh, Martin Luther had a revelation, a footprint about God's grace. And he shared this footprint of God with the world. Once the truth of salvation by faith was laid down as a doctrine, men felt compelled to build denominations And they got to this place where this is the only, this is the most important paw print. This is the most important truth to the exclusion of all other revelations that might come to the body of Christ. And we've built divisive walls, de denominations. We even, even, even in the, uh, the charismatic renewal, we have a word of faith movements taking off and thriving 20, 30 years ago only to become their own denomination and camp out on their truth and not receive and look down on other people's encounter, they, they found another paw print. They found another revelation, another truth. One church cannot, can never be the full expression of Jesus in the earth. It takes all of us bringing what we have to the table. God is giving us, constantly giving us revelation of his person. Always remember that the truths of God are meant to lead us to the God of truth. The person of who he is. God wants you to follow these tracks of truth until you come to a revelation of who he is. 30 seconds of beholding the glory of Jesus through an opening in the heavenlies turned a murderous Saul into a martyr named Paul. That is the power of an open heaven. He began by following these Pharisaic tracks, but then he suddenly saw him. Saul was faithfully following the old footprints of the law that had turned to legalism. That empty legalism without revelation caused Saul to persecute Christians who were following fresh tracks. He thought he was doing what was right until he saw the risen Christ and said, I've got this all wrong. Oh, don't get nervous, it's just 11.38. I wonder how many more like Saul are out there waiting for us 
to open the heavens. Waiting for a church to open the heavens so they too can have a life-changing encounter with the glory of God. If you've ever had a real visitation of the manifest presence of God, it'll mess up your theology. It'll change everything. You, you, will just, you will be wrecked. You will abandon all that you know to pursue the one that you've encountered. This is my goal. This is, this is what I'm after. I want to see. I am in pursuit of the glory of God. You'll hear me say it and say it and say it and say it and keep on saying. I want to see an open heaven. I want to see windows open. Throughout the Bible, whenever the heavens are opened and the glory of God appears, there's always a cloud involved. When God chooses to visit humanity, he brings his cloud for protection. The cloud shields us from seeing too much lest we see his face and die. We are close but covered. I mean, I, 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 there, I know stories of... of uh, Bethel Church in Reading where there was an actual manifestation of clouds showing up in the house of the Lord. I told you, uh, if you've been here very long, multiple times where I was in a meeting where it started raining inside the building. Rain comes, rains never fall without a cloud. <laughs> When you choose to visit God, you have to make your own cloud. In the Old Testament, you got to consider this. It's in the 16th chapter of Leviticus. You don't have to pull it up. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Every high priest who was chosen to come close to God's presence had to go through this process. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. He had to make smoke before he entered or he would die in the presence of the ark. Crazy. A censer is this small container usually made of brass or gold. It's, it's usually suspended on a chain, hanging from a chain that they would, they would take it and, and, and it would, they would walk. Uh, you see uh, priests in churches still today, they would take the censer and they'll walk down the aisle in a... Uh, 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 procession <laughs> and making smoke and it's the same symbol it's not the same effect but in in the holy of holies they would take this censer and stick it through the slit in the veil and make smoke before they ever dare enter they had to make smoke and then when they got in there they couldn't see because there was so much smoke and they had to do their ministry by 
touch, by feel. Literally, it's from Habakkuk and, and three other instances in the, in the Gospels where it says, the just shall live by faith and not by sight. This was what the priests were doing. They had to live by faith and not by, they couldn't see it. They had to minister in the cloud. The cloud of smoke was literally the priest's last layer of protection, shielding his flesh from God's glory and certain death. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that gives us access to God's throne room today. But it is our sacrificial, repentant worship that attracts him and allows him to move close to us. In the same way, true worship makes enough smoke to allow you to draw close to him. Worship is the key component to the manifest presence of God coming down among us. When you worship, you are making smoke as a sweet incense, a favorite fragrance to attract him. True worship, true worship. That's why I was telling you before, we can't just recite words on a screen or a hymn book. It's got to be something that we dig into our, uh, our heart and, and we, we, we make it part of our expression. We don't just sing things. And if you can't say what you see, if you don't feel like this is not me, then, then don't say anything. But find the lyric, find yourself in the psalm, find yourself and allow it to become a part of who you are and not just Say things that you, a song that you memorize, and I like that. I'm going to wait till they sing my favorite song to decide if I am going to participate. Worship is not about your favorite song. It's about his favorite song. What can we do? How can we gather in a room and bring God his favorite? How can we build him his favorite house? We have to get past ourselves and learn how to make smoke. True worship is the only thing that will make smoke. I wrote a song several years ago, never did anything with it. Uh, I, I, I didn't get it complete. I think it's just a verse in the course, but it was like this. Uh, and it's called True Worship. I remember when life was simple and sweet and relationship was a ritual I kept once a week. I'd go to the house of the Lord and put in my time. Soothing my conscience, pretending everything was all right. Then I finally came to the end of myself and decided to put my agenda back on a shelf. Because I'm tired of going through motions, playing the game. I've come with an earnest desire and a heart set aflame. I'll give him true worship with the passionate hunger for more of the Lord, giving true worship. And I can't remember the line that goes right there. <laughs> but you get, I think that that's maybe why I never did anything with it. It's not complete. But you get the picture. It's got to be authentic. We can't just make up words. We can't just come for our pleasure. We come for his pleasure. 
We come to make smoke with authentic, true worship so that we can draw near to him. Then as we make smoke and we step towards him, as we draw near to God, he then draws near to us. He wants to be close to us more than we can even consider wanting to be close to him. Think back through your life in Christ and mark the memories of God's touch that stand out to you. Think right now, just consider. Consider moments where you've experienced him, encountered him. Can you recall what the preacher preached? Do you even remember what the singers were singing? Few of us can recall those details, but all of us can distinctly remember how it felt, what God's presence felt like in that encounter. We're marked by it. We become dissatisfied with everything else. Sometimes we get a bad attitude and we start judging instead of allowing your disdain to lead you to a place of intercession, to cry, instead of judging people, pray that God would move on them to see Jesus rightly, to discover worship rightly, instead of beginning to judge everywhere you go, every, every, well, they're a newser. They're a newser church, so we don't want to go there. Well, maybe... Maybe God is sending you there to pray for. Uh, have you ever had an encounter with electricity? You know, it's like, I remember as a kid when we discovered how you could rub your feet on the carpet and walk up to somebody and shock. Ah! What about playing with a light socket? How many of your parents have just kind of yelled when you saw your child getting close to the light socket? And now today they have those little plastic things you can cover it. If you've, and you only know that because you've either had a hint or heard and you've learned by someone else's experience. If you've ever been shocked, you never forget what it felt like. If he even comes close to you, you will never Forget it. I long for those times. I live for those moments. It drives me. It's why I get up. It's what gives me joy. It's what I pursue. It's what I talk about. It's who I am. It's what I want. I must have Jesus. I must have Jesus. The principle is simple. The more smoke you make, the closer you get. Again, the key is worship. The value of worship is not measured in terms of volume or intensity. We know more about praise than we know about worship. Thanksgiving will get you into the gates. Praise gets you into the courts. But worship takes you 
into his presence. We often get stalled in the courtyard and never make it to the throne room and think perhaps it's the low bow required when we enter the throne room and first see the king. It's just a, too, it's too, a little too bit humbling for us. Repentance has never been popular with the flesh. As I get ready to land this plane, I promise you I'm almost done. There are five things, five distinct, the word shows us, tells us five different definite things that opens the heavens. It's not a formula, it's a lifestyle of worship and dedication to God first in all things. And here's some examples. Number one, I've already shared it with you. And I want you to get ready to prepare your tithing and your offering, your best gift. I want you to consider how it is so much a part of all the energy that you used this way to earn your income and how important that you transfer all of that energy and you put it into the kingdom of God. You're not given to David or Nicole. You're giving to the kingdom. If, you're really, if, you're, if your posture is right, you don't give to us because you like us. Tithing is an ancient key to the heavenlies that even predates the giving of the law to Abraham. The principle of giving God the first fruits of our income, our increase, is clearly described to us. We're all familiar. We would almost quote it in the book of Malachi. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. That's the purpose. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I would just tell you, you can't experience the reviving presence of the glory of God and not be a giver. Another number two is persecution. Persecution opens the heavens. It's demonstrated in the book of Acts when Stephen was martyred. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Persecution opens the heaven. Brokenness in the earth creates openness in the heavens. Persistence is an effective tool for prying open the gates of heaven. 
Elijah prayed seven times and kept sending his servant back to search the skies until on the seventh time, the servant saw a cloud the size of a man's hand rise up out of the sea. That tiny cloud from God grew into such a powerful storm that the skies turned black with rain and wind. Jesus told his disciples that the door would be opened to those who persistently ask and keep asking, to those who knock and keep knocking on God's door, to those that ask and seek and knock. Unity opens the heavens. It invites God's presence wherever two or three agree concerning anything they ask. Jesus literally said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them, in the middle. The opposite side of this principle is illustrated when Peter warned husbands and wives to remain united so that their prayers would not be hindered. Think about that, husbands and wives. Find a way to stay united. That doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but come to a place of understanding that you choose to live in unity with one another. Even if you don't see eye to eye, you can still love one another and think, I will never think like Nicole. And Nicole will never think like me, but we have learned to balance our lives and walk in unity most of the time. <laughs> and when we don't, I quickly apologize. Worship is the fifth key to opening up the heavens. David, the psalmist, prophesied, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, so that the King of glory may come in. Have you ever seen a head on a gate? It's obvious that David is talking about people with gates and everlasting doors. It's obvious a call to worship. And it's this call to worship that will open up the doors and the king of glory will come in. It's this worship that will open. Like it or not, the only way we can begin to open the heavens over our church, over our city, is to become giving persistent and unified worshipers who aren't afraid to sacrifice all for Christ. So, we're going to receive our tithing and our offering as a part of worship. You must understand that it's more than just pretty voices. I think I'm married to the greatest voice on the planet, but it's not just a voice. It's a heart that's learned the price, the costly price of abandoning self. And it's, it's wonderful that the voice 
is the tool God gave her to use. And I am enamored by the gift. And then we birthed the second best. I don't know. She's, she's, but it's more than the voice that brings the presence. Only, only a broken and contrite heart can draw the brokenness in the earth can create openness in heaven. And so as you understand the sweat that you had to walk through this week to earn the money that is now in your bank account, that you bring, you transfer the value of all the energy you spent and you give your first fruits to him as an act of worship. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.